0: The old pilot's plane tales of degrees, knots, pounds, and things. For such a modern mode of travel, in aviation we have a funny mix of measurements, the history of which is a fascinating thing to contemplate as we jet our way across the planet. The knot. Our usual measure of velocity in aviation goes back to the earliest days of sailing, when a log would be thrown astern, and as the rope attached was paid out, the number of knots tied in it that passed through the sailor's hands, whilst an hourglass spilled sand for 30 seconds, became a measure of the ship's speed. The log wasn't actually a log, although it was called a chip log, It was a flat wooden square weighted at one end so that it sat perpendicular to the water's surface and couldn't be easily dragged along by the boat. The knots were tied eight fathoms apart, the fathom being two yards long, which is the span of a man's outstretched arms. So eight fathoms was 48 feet, albeit different nations had slightly different definitions of the exact distances involved, and a foot was, well, the length of a man's foot, of course. Just as an aside, the inch was the width of a man's thumb, and the origin of the word comes from the Latin for one twelfth, and it was subdivided into three barleycorns, which was uh, the length of a barleycorn seed, of course. Now, a knot is a knot, and since the 1890s or thereabouts, has been drummed into young seamen that a knot is a unit of speed namely one nautical mile per hour and that consequently only the uneducated speak of knots per hour or knots an hour a knot per hour would of course be a measure of acceleration not velocity the reason we hang on to such an archaic measure is that a vessel travelling at one knot will cover the equivalent of one minute of longitude or latitude at the equator in one hour, and that makes marking the progress on a map very easy, certainly when using a standard Mercator projection chart. To create a projection map, one must imagine half of an engraved globe made of glass with the light behind it shining through, A sheet of paper is held upon which the image of the world would be projected. The Mercator is pretty much the standard chart for nautical and aeronautical use, mainly because its projection is adjusted so that the lines of longitude and latitude turn into a straight grid. This allows angles to be measured accurately anywhere on the map. The scale is also reasonably constant, certainly when measuring short distances and they're a fairly simple formulae to apply to longer measurements. Of course, the lines of longitude and latitude we see marked on a globe, and which are still the standard method of plotting our position on the world, came about in the 3rd century, when Eratosthenes of Cyrene, the chief librarian of the Library of Alexandria, devised the method. It is represented on the Earth's surface by lines of longitude that run between the North and South Poles, starting at the Prime Meridian, running through the Greenwich Observatory in London, and counting round the world to the west and east until they reach the Antipodal Meridian at 180 degrees in the Pacific Ocean. Of interest... At the International Meridian Conference in 1884, when Greenwich was chosen as the position of the Prime Meridian, the only country to vote against was the Dominican Republic, and I don't think we've spoken to them since. The lines of latitude start at the equator and circle around the world, growing smaller as they come nearer to the poles, but always staying parallel to the equator and finishing when they are at 90 degrees to it. Nothing, of course, could be that simple, and our problem is that the Earth isn't exactly a perfect sphere. It's a bilateral episolid, or as Sir Isaac Newton suggested, an oblate spheroid. In other words, it has a little middle-aged spread. Luckily for most of us, we can usually ignore the equatorial bulge. Longitude and latitude are divided into degrees and then subdivided into 60 minutes, each of which is, at the equator or on a line of longitude, one nautical mile long. Therefore, multiplying 360 degrees by 60 minutes gives us 21,600 nautical miles, the circumference of the Earth. Divide this by 24, the hours in a day, and we get 900 knots, the speed you are doing while standing still on the equator. This speed obviously reduces if you walk towards a pole, where you eventually become stationary, just slowly rotating at 15 degrees an hour. Now multiply that 900 by the cosine of your latitude, and you get your current speed. Sitting here, recording this, I'm at 51 degrees north, the cosine of which is 0.62932, which multiplied by 900 has me doing 566 knots. So, when I get airborne from Heathrow and accelerate to the ground speed of the earth underneath me and fly east, how come I don't stay stationary over the top? Of course, Ships don't usually sail over the North or South Poles, so the problems that occur when in those regions weren't really a problem for early navigators. Aircraft, however, regularly fly over the poles, certainly the North Pole. One of the problems for them lies in the fact that true north isn't exactly in the same place as magnetic north, which sits in Greenland and has a tendency to wander around. At high latitudes, a magnetic compass first becomes unreliable and then useless, official terms you will find on a map. Luckily, someone clever, Elmer Ambrose Sperry, to be precise, invented a gyroscopic compass that will, generally speaking, hold a heading. However, a gyro orientates itself to a fixed point in space and isn't tied to the Earth. So, since a gyro compass drifts as the Earth rotates under it, a mechanism had to counter its movement. In early devices, this was provided by a weight that would precess the compass at the same rate as the Earth moved, but since this amount wasn't constant with latitude, the maximum being at the equator and there being none at the poles, the amount of precession would need to be varied. In addition, the gyro compass is usually regularly updated automatically with reference to a magnetic compass and this must be decoupled prior to polar navigation. Mr Sperry overcame many of these problems so that aircraft could have a true north reference and could navigate over the poles using a simple square grid map orientated to the prime meridian until they came far enough for their compasses to be usable again. Nowadays, we still use grid navigation, but our headings are maintained by inertial reference units and global positioning systems. It certainly seems a bit odd using an archaic speed reference, such as the knot, in modern aviation, and the International Civil Aviation Organization has long tried to standardize the measures that are used in different nations. This started as far back as 1944, but in 1979, the International System of Units, SI, was accepted as the standard system to be used. However, since then, it has been recognised that there are some non-SI units which have a special place in aviation and which will have to be retained, at least temporarily. These are the Nautical Mile and the knot as well as the foot when used in the measurement of altitude, elevation, or height only. Of course, many countries have opted out of the ICAO recommended practices and don't even use the alternative option to the SI units. Mind you, I'm pretty sure that the only country in the world that still uses the primary ICAO unit for height of metres instead of feet is China, Both the UK and the USA have their fair share of deviations from the ICAO list of standard units. The UK, strangely, still measure their runway lengths in feet, but their visibility in metres. Even more strangely, in the US, both runway length and runway visual ranges are measured in feet, but visibility is in fractions of statute miles. I have to ask, where do statute miles appear in other aviation measures and, if choosing to use a mile, why not a nautical one? Of course, the use of many units have grown up from habit and a natural resistance to change. After all, the pound is still standard in the States, whereas it has been replaced in most other countries by the SI unit, the kilogram, which is divisible by 10 and converting into tons is a simple matter of moving the decimal place. The pound, comprising units numbering 16, 12 or 14, depending on where you live and what you are measuring, is not nearly so convenient. The pound weight descended from the Roman Libra, a term for a set of scales or a balance, which is why a pound is abbreviated to 2LB. After independence, the United States customary system was adopted, which was basically the same as the English units. However, the British units were overhauled into the imperial system. It wasn't until the late 50s that they came together again in the International Yard and Pound Agreement. However, in many areas, such as the military, science, medicine, and some government and industry sectors, metric units have been adopted, But aviation in the United States has yet to catch up. I can, to a certain extent, understand resistance to change, but I have flown different aircraft that measure engine thrust in actual thousands of revs, percentage of full power, and EPA. I've got used to hydraulic pressure in pounds per square inch and in bars. Weights in pounds, kilograms, or tons, and I still fly in airspace, measuring my height in either feet or meters. I have learned, however, that it doesn't really take too long to get used to a new system. One area where we all tend to agree, though, is the measurement of time. Of course, we still have a potential confusion between Greenwich Mean Time and Coordinated Universal Time, abbreviated to UTC, after a compromise between the original suggestions of Cut, C-U-T, by English speakers, and Tuck, T-U-C, by French speakers and the makers of Tuck Crackers. It is, however, effectively interchangeable with GMT. The use of GMT was established as far back as 1657, as an aid to mariners for determining longitude at sea. When sailing across the vast oceans, maintaining a constant latitude was relatively simple, since it could be found by observing the angle above the horizon of the sun or the charted stars. Longitude was much harder as it involved a comparison of the Moon and Mars with their anticipated positions at a Pacific time using a quadrant. This was hampered by the movement of a ship and when the sky was obscured. As a consequence, when crossing the Atlantic, for example, it was relatively easy to establish how far north or south one was, but not when one was about to bump into land. After a number of disastrous shipwrecks, the British government established the Longitude Act, which offered a rich prize to the person who could demonstrate a truly practical method. A self-educated clockmaker from humble beginnings, in 1773, John Harrison invented the key element for measuring longitude, an accurate marine chronometer. His genius in developing a clock that could compensate for all the variables of temperature, pressure, humidity and movement that occurred during a long journey was wonderfully documented in the book by Dana Sobel and the TV series on the BBC called Longitude. In a twist of betrayal, Harrison never received his prize, but after his death, his son was awarded an equivalent sum by the king. Harrison's original and beautifully crafted chronometers can still be seen in the Royal Greenwich Museum. For the concept of time zones, we have to thank the great engineer Isambard Kingdom Brunel, who, amongst other engineering marvels, built the Great Western Railway in 1840. Before that time, every part of England kept its own time, which varied depending upon the local measure of noon. This made the creation of a railway timetable impossibly complicated, since in Bristol, noon was ten minutes later than London noon. Brunel made the trains run to railway time, based on the time measured at the Greenwich Observatory. Before too long, time signals were being transmitted by telegraph, and by 1855 it had been adopted countrywide. America followed suit, adopting a system proposed by the editor of the Traveler's Official Railway Guide, which separated the US into four zones, one hour apart, and centered on railway stations in the center of major cities such as Detroit, Buffalo, Pittsburgh, Atlanta, and Charleston. The system was inaugurated in 1883 and replaced with standard zone time in 1918. The first practical concept for a worldwide time zone system was presented by the Scottish-born Canadian Sir Sanford Fleming. His first proposal for a 24-hour clock system based on a universal day of 24 hours beginning at Greenwich midnight was adopted in 1884, but his suggestion for time zones didn't come about for a while. When the 20th century started, most countries on the earth still used standard time, but only a few used an hourly offset from GMT. However, as communications improved, both electronic and physical, by 1929 most major countries adopted a standard offset. Nepal was the last when they moved slightly to UTC plus 5 hours 45 minutes in 1986. Not all countries use a standard whole-hour offset from UTC. North Korea, Newfoundland, India, Iran, Afghanistan, Burma, Sri Lanka and parts of Australia use half-hour deviations, and some, such as Nepal and the Chatham Islands of New Zealand, use quarter-hour offsets. China and India, despite the enormous size of their countries, use a single time zone. Over international waters time moves at a standard one hour for every 15 degrees offset from the prime meridian. In our world on an aircraft, the standard time used is UTC, which since about 1950 has been referred to as Zulu and given with reference to a 24-hour clock. The term Zulu came from Nathaniel Bowditch's 1802 system found in the American Practical Navigator, which labels time zones with letters, avoiding J, which could be confused with I. Not, of course, to be confused with the five I's nations of Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the United Kingdom and the United States, whose military formalised the reference to time zones in the book ACP-121 with the letters we use today. The letters system, spoken in the phonetic alphabet, offsets east and west from Zulu. For example, plus one is alpha and plus twelve is Mike, remembering that Juliet is left out. A sad thing for Romeo, who remains lonely at minus five hours. If one set about creating a purpose-built system for aviators, I'm sure things would be a lot more logical. And to be fair, ICAO is striving to do just that. However, whilst we try to get things the same, it is actually becoming more easier to accommodate variations. The inclusion of computerized displays into aircraft allow instantaneous and accurate conversions from feet to meters, pounds to kilograms, knots to kilometers per hour, and the like, such that they can be tailored to a pilot's personal preferences or a country's requirements. As a consequence, I look forward to the day I can fly at a height of 4.5 bananas, a speed of 3,000 apples, and head off at an angle of 37 oranges.